and welcome to Dissecting Philosophy with Dr. McDonald. In this episode, we will be continuing on with our reading of Herbert Marcuse's One Dimensional Man, getting stuck into Chapter 3, which is called The Conquest of the Unhappy Consciousness, Repressive desublimation, which it sounds all very posh and all very complex, but don't worry, as we always like to do, we'll have a nice description of, of exactly what is an unhappy consciousness and then talking about the whole concept of desublimation later on when we get into it. But as we always like to do, starting off giving a brief recap of what we covered in the last episode dealing with chapter 2, then touching upon the key overall themes for chapter 3. First of all, looking at pre-capitalist society. It's quite a broad way to put it. It's so much is covered from ancient history all all the way up until the industrial period let's say so that's quite a large period of time having a look at in the general themes of the artist and alienation next after we deal with pre-capitalist society then we'll be getting stuck into capitalist society dealing with consumer society gratification and immediate satisfaction so then, let's go into our brief recap of chapter 2. So as we said before, chapter 2, for a large part of it, dealt with a chunk of Marx's thought. And that is, it dealt with how exactly things worked from Marx's view in industrial society with people ultimately slaving away at their jobs and working for a boss. But... Marcuse ultimately identifies something ultimately happens in the transition from Marx's industrial period and over into 1960s society. What is one of those things that happens is that people now identify themselves with their jobs. Ultimately, they are their jobs. In such a way, it was before people did work, but now another way to put it is people are now their work and define themselves as such another obviously difference is the continued role in and vast role that automation and technology has played within people's work and then building upon those ideas of people identifying with their work people want to work for a company uphold the company values seek to be promoted and even do their best for the company overall the example that marcuse gives us is one in which workers will think about problems of production various different things problems that happen within the work and they care and, and concerned about it to such an extent that almost they're like shareholders they care about all the various different problems that happens within their company and want to do their best to resolve those problems at the same time so then we also noted that there's a switch away from a direct boss and worker dynamic. It's still there, of course, in a given sense. But who is the one that you direct or your hatred to is not no longer your boss anymore. Why is that? Because everything's now based upon administration and the corporation and in which the bosses themselves are all caught up into that. What is the way in which they're all caught up into it? Of course, is making sure quotas are made, targets are hit, and all those various different things. And bosses themselves have to equally make sure the targets are being hit, make sure that the workers are obviously hitting the targets that they need to hit, and all those various different things that happen, all based upon an administrative side of things and the administration having an impact upon how things work. In the midst of all this as well, we had a discussion in chapter 2 with how society is ultimately run, is that it says there's a focus on making people happy and content. And what does ultimately that do? Have no feelings of discontent whatsoever and no feelings of revolt. And what's one of the ways in which we built into that idea for chapter two was that people, Marcuse says, are slaves to the corporation 
and the decisions that are made are blindly accepted without any form of resistance and without any question whatsoever. So we had this sort of starting to build into it a bit more for this chapter, the ways in which society itself is constructed so there's no form of revolt whatsoever. Why would people need to revolt if they're happy and content, for instance? And then also people being slaves to the company and doing exactly what the company says and ultimately having no form of discontent overall with the company, wanting to do their best to uphold values and so forth, but it still ultimately remains slave-like because there's that lack of critical engagement, lack of people saying, hold on, wait a minute, you're asking me to do what? And so on <laughs> with the company themselves. Now, a good point here would be to say, that's not to say there's a lot of discontent that happens, of course. That is to say, Amazon workers within the warehouses will be in a state of discontent when you need to pee in a bottle, of course. But what is that form of discontent meant, met ultimately with very quick nip it in the butt is another way of saying it, of trying to have all these problems resolved as quickly as possible in order for people to move back straight into a form of being content again. Hence why you have so much emphasis upon a relation into HR departments and human resources and as well as just making sure that people are also okay and their working environments are fine and all the various different administrative and administrative work that goes into all that as well at the same time as well as in the customer side of things if there's any feeling of discontent it's quickly nipped in the buttons trying to be resolved as quickly as possible through that whole customer service companies bending over backwards in order to make sure that their customer is ultimately happy and content at the end of the day and also what we touched upon as well in chapter two was the role of democracy and democratic society versus communist society. And just touching upon the key point that Marcuse wanted to make is that within the 1960s, we have the Cold War. So ultimately, we have the dynamic and views overall of an enemy. So if you're within the United States, it's communism and Soviet Russia is the enemy. And if you're in Soviet Russia, capitalism and American way of life is the enemy. So here's where Mark Hughes comes in really interesting here is to say that within both democratic and communist society, they share the same problem. That is to say, people are preconditioned to be a slave because they act according to a predefined role that has been given to them and that they're content in that role. Also, within communist and democratic societies, all this focus upon automation and technology, as well as the factors, all this emphasis upon the democratic worker being content to go to work and working for promotions, as well as the communist worker equally being content to go to work to do their best for the country. So overall, then, the main point that's made out of chapter two is to say that here we have two opposing ideologies to each other, democracy and communism, but how they're structured and how they work in relation to society, precisely also having the shared problem of the worker themselves being preconditioned to be like a slave, acting according to their predefined role and being content in their role is something that's ultimately shared as well as those other points that we just made. So what appears to be two opposed systems actually have quite a lot in common with each other. So then let's leave chapter two behind then and let's move into chapter three. So chapter three then, one of the main themes that it discusses is culture and art and the role of the artist or writer or painter and so forth within their society. So overall then for pre-capitalist society, one of the main things that comes out initially as well is Marcuse says that things are not based upon their profit and how much quantity that will be sold. Man and machine are not yet cogs in that machine. And interestingly enough, when you look at the writers and so forth, he says the style and the rhythm 
in which they present things is precisely representative of people who took in walks in forests, in valleys, and conversed with people in villages and inns, salons, which is not hair salon, of course, but rather a place where people would have an intellectual conversation about whatever subject that you like, and also courts. So, one of the things as well that you can initially say about art and about culture, it seems very hoity-toity is the way that we would say here in the UK. It seems very high culture. It seems something that would be only in relation to just the aristocracy and so forth or the extremely wealthy. Of course, it does have that relation into aristocracy and wealth and so forth but one of the points that Marcuse makes is to say that art itself has been an integral part of society and that we can go throughout history to look at the ways in which art and society have been ultimately working together what is examples of that go back to ancient Greek art go back to ancient Egyptian art it's all fundamentally people within that society building temples to gods like in Greek society, building massive colosseums if in Roman society and so forth, all building big massive architectural things as well as you have hieroglyphics within ancient Egyptian society. What is interesting about this is what Marcuse says is that we have all this wonderful relation between art and society but also he says that art itself is sort of alien and the word he uses is alienation but it's ultimately say it has a wee bit of an otherworldly nature about it and the example of course he uses is that when you think about temples within ancient Greece he says they're so vast and in, in a way terrifying because of the scope and magnitude they're almost kind of alien to that society the way that they fit into that society and then of course another great example of something like that is of course the pyramids something that's vast and terrifyingly huge as he would say and having that role within society in itself what people tend to do as he says is have all these big monolithic things, big gigantic buildings that are always huge in scale and scope, but in a way seems kind of alien to the society in and of itself. So from that then, moving away from architecture and so forth with an ancient society, we build then upon the idea of the artist as well as the writer because Marcuse really uses the term artist in the very general broad sense of it to encompass painters and writers and so forth. So he says really when you think about the artists or writers, they ultimately present the world to us as something that has a relation into this alienation. Why is this the case? Because... He says, people do not identify themselves with the world or with society. Why not? Because they seek to reshape and restructure the world and how people think of it. And another way to think about this as well is that the world in which they live in doesn't fit into how they think and see of the world. But also there's this sort of protecting the individual's different view of the world. As he says here from a nice quote from page 64, This view of the world is not always based upon pleasure or happiness. Key crucial line. It's not always based upon pleasure or happiness, but rather protecting the unhappy consciousness of the divided world. Defeated possibilities, hopes unfulfilled, and promises betrayed, revealing a dimension of man and nature which was repressed and repelled in society. Absolutely fantastic quote. Here we have a relation 
into man in the world. It's not always based upon pleasure and happiness, which is going to be key for what's going to happen later on when we deal with capitalist society and consumer culture. Why is that? Because they're based upon pleasure and happiness. But here, pre-capitalist society, it's not based upon pleasure and happiness. In fact, we have a protecting of the unhappy consciousness. The way in which someone has a discontent with the world in which they live in. What's the various different ways that we can view the world? We divide it up. There's lots of different ways. Some of the examples, defeated possibilities, hopes unfulfilled, promises betrayed. And therefore, going back into that last line, what does it ultimately reveal is a dimension of man and nature which repressed and repelled in reality. Reality in and of itself doesn't show the way in which people are repressed. But through the artist's work or the writer's book and so forth, it shows the way in which they are repressed by the very society in which they live in. As another way to say that is that the artist's view shows a way in which society itself could not provide forms of satisfaction, but reveal an aspect, the way in which their form of understanding the world was repressed. So we have all this immense importance here, immense level of importance upon the very idea of repression. The world doesn't represent how I understand the world. In fact, how the world is to me represses my very view, represses the way in which I understand things. Therefore, you have a division between man and the world or woman in the world in which you have within that representation of art, within the literature, precisely the artists expressing their division with the world in which they live in. And so here we have a fantastic examples again. He says the salon, which is the place in which people had intellectual discussions and so forth about topics. We have the concert, operas, theater. What are they all designed to do? Create and invoke precisely another dimension of reality. So that's to say, regardless whether you're sitting down at a nice William Shakespeare play, or whether you're listening to an opera, Marriage of Figaro, whatever you like, it ultimately takes you out of the world and society in which you live in and transports you into another completely different view of the world. Of course, Arguably, that's what we could say about modern film as well. When we look at something like Parasite, for instance, as a film, what does it do? It transports us out of how we would think of the world and society and presents to us something that's incredibly different to how we would potentially think and see the world. Hence the power of great films, because it makes us think of things differently, challenges our opinions, makes us have thought-provoking experiences. So we then move into another great quote from pages 66 to 67, and it states here, whether ritualized or not, art contains the rationality of negation. In its advanced positions, it is the great refusal, the protest against that which is, the modes in which man and things are made to appear, to sing and sound and speak, are modes of refuting, breaking and recreating their factual existence. But these modes of negation pay tribute to their antagonistic society to which they are linked. Separated from the sphere of labour, where society reproduces itself and its misery, the world of art which they create remains with all its truth a privilege and an illusion. And so here we have precisely going into the points about what is art and what does the artist do, what does the writer do and so forth. They ultimately have a position of negation, negation of them against society, against the world. Why? Because as we just said, the world doesn't represent how they think and understand. In fact, 
their own view is something that's repressed within society. And so their own art, their own writing and so forth becomes a great refusal of that society. And therefore you have, as he says, music, singing, sound, speaking and so forth, all forms of breaking, refuting and precisely recreating existence itself, the artist reshaping and remolding the world into how they understand the world itself. And then, as we see for that wrapping off sentence there, separated from the sphere of labour where society reproduces itself and its misery, the world of art which they create remains with all its truth a privilege and an illusion. So therefore, it's ultimately to say what the artist ultimately creates is this illusionary world that's precisely not representative of reality. Why not? Because it's precisely one which they've created for themselves. So now, let's move from the pre-capitalist world into capitalist society, into 1960s society. And what exactly is one of the differences then what happens within capitalist society is that now within 1960s society why do I keep on saying 1960s because that's when Marcuse's writing and specifically thinking about society within the context then there is now no great protest or being opposed to society because both the idea of protest and opposition have now become part of society itself. As he says there from page 67, incorporated into the society and circulate as part and parcel of the equipment which adorns and psychoanalyzes the prevailing state of affairs. Thus, they become commercials. They sell, comfort or excite. And so here you can see what's one of the things in which contemporary society, 1960 society works, is you have a vast quantity of different experiences of the world, vast different quantities of ways in which you can understand things. It suddenly gets broken down into, okay, that's all well and good, but how can we sell this? How can we make this into something that's comfortable, digestible, something that people want to buy? Or how can we sell this as something exciting that people will also buy? So therefore you strip all the individualistic qualities about it, all the, it precisely makes the opposition in and of itself something that's marketable like we were doing before in relation to punk rock, for instance, here you have precisely a movement and a thought that's marketable. How can we sell it to people? Because people find this exciting. And therefore, the more it excites them, the more we want to buy and consume it. So therefore, as we're saying, the antagonistic quality is stripped away where precisely the intention and function are revalued and transformed, which is another way of saying what was once considered to be radical is now quite happily living on a bookshelf along with other books. One of the examples that Marcuse gives is Don Juan. So Don Juan is a character, he says, is incredibly subversive as a character. He's ultimately a womanizer and has an immense level of sexual conquest and so on. A good contemporary example of that would be Charlie Sheen's character within Two and a Half Men. All what he's focusing on is just specifically sexual conquest and then having as much sex as physically possible. Of course, here you have a man that's precisely against societal norms of monogamy, couples, and therefore having an extended monogamous relationship with a partner. Here you have a man who's specifically all about sexual domination and sexual conquest. But now, as what 
Mark Hughes is saying, you take a subversive character like Don Juan, now he suddenly gets made into something that's sellable and marketable because of its subversive quality about it. But in doing so, it precisely loses all the subversive force and destructive content that it originally had. Ultimately, as Mark Hughes says, it loses its truth in a way through it becoming marketable. As we have another great quote here from page 64, the absorbent power of society depletes the artistic dimension by assimilating its antagonistic contents. In the realm of culture, the new totalitarianism manifests itself precisely in harmonizing pluralism, where the most contradictory works and truths peacefully coexist in indifference. So as we said, here you have what's considered to be incredibly subversive works, incredibly radical works of painting or literature and so forth. But ultimately, when you take the artist's intention and so forth, it doesn't matter anymore what the artist means because what happens to it as what we we're saying their intention and the whole function of how it works is retooled revaluated and transformed why because people have got to make money off of it and so suddenly you put Nietzsche in with a bunch of other people that you would say was, oh, here's a bunch of existentialist thinkers. If you like Nietzsche, then you'll also like Camus. Then you'll also like Sartre. If you like rationalist thinkers, then you'll also like Descartes, Leibniz, Spinoza. And you see exactly what happens within at least the philosophy side of things. Everything starts to become part of this whole categorization and everything starts to lose its subversive content. Everything just starts to be something nice that's something that ultimately you could pick up as representative of a specific mode of thought at a given time period. Whoop-de-doo. <laughs> and if you think about it in relation to painting, for instance, there is no really caring about what the artist's intention and meaning and so forth is. Let's look at something like Monet, for example. When you have a work of Monet, why is it what are they ultimately trying to do with that? Reshape, retool, restructure how it works. What do you do? You make prints out of it. Why? Because it's something pretty. Why would you want to make it pretty and print out millions of copies of it because it would be something nice to sell your grandma it would be nice to adorn on her wall and here we have this whole relation into what also Marcuse talks about the way in which Freud and Kant and all the various different thinkers and so forth all just happily are on bookshelves within a drugstore, as he says, for America. They're all just happily just sitting there. What he's not caring about, crucially here, is the distinction between high and low culture. It's one of the things that he says. Within, he's not caring specifically about within art history, for instance. How would you be able to define what makes high art from low art? That's not one of the things that's interesting to him. Ultimately, what we can say is what happens to art and literature and so forth when it becomes part and parcel of being packaged within something to be sold? is therefore has to be touching upon certain points that's enticing for people to buy. But ultimately here we can touch upon some good points is that he says the positive aspect of contemporary society is precisely one in which the world of the arts, fine arts, literature and so forth, which were only accessible to the wealthy and aristocracy in the past, is now freely available to everybody. And from that you could see, well, he would be very happy with the invention of the internet and very happy with 
precisely at the touch of a mouse button and a click of a keyboard, everybody can view all these fantastic pieces of art and literature and so forth and find out more about them. That's all incredibly fantastic stuff. And that's precisely one of the points that Marquise wants to make and is key in saying that he's not opposed to precisely the contemporary ways in which you have paperbacks and so forth. That's all absolutely fine and is something that's absolutely fantastic that's happened. The affordability of literature and so forth. That's all really good stuff. What he's finding interesting then ultimately and problematical is what happens when you ultimately take all this stuff and you make it into a cog basically. As he says there from page 68. The problem is that they become cogs in a culture machine which remakes their content. And one of the examples that he gives and discusses is poetry. And this is from page 70. The poetic language speaks of that which is of this world, which is visible, tangible, audible in man and nature, and of which is not seen, not touched, not heard. So here for poetry we touch upon some nice stuff. What does poetry ultimately do? Take things that we immediately can experience, that we can see, that we can hear, that we have precisely an interaction into. It opens the door for us, allows us to touch and understand exactly what is being said. But in doing so, something happens to the words and what exactly happens within poetry as he says is something that's got to be not seen not touched not heard so ultimately we take as our basis the world itself and then we move from the world into how the artist wants us to understand the world or in this given case how the poet wants us to try to understand something that can't be seen, touched, or heard. And a good example of that is Wordsworth. And the way in which Wordsworth, precisely you can have a starting off of talking about nature and so on, and then it'll start to pull away from it just slightly, and it'll pull away from it even more. And one of the examples that I'm trying to get at here is the sublime as a context and an, as a concept. Ultimately, one of the examples in which Wordsworth would be talking about is a sublime experience within nature. You can't precisely see, touch the sublime, but it's something that you can feel, that overwhelming feeling of nature in itself. So that's one example, of course, for how poetry makes us precisely have an experience that's not seen, not touched, and not heard, the sublime. But in relation to contemporary society, and this is from page 73, he says, this traditional stuff of art, which is images, harmonies, and colors, reappears only as quotes, residues of past meaning in a context of refusal. And now everybody immediately sees, hopefully, even more of what Marcuse is trying to say. When you take the whole poetic experience out of it and you try to make it in part of a fast food experience, <laughs> it's really a nice way to think about it, fast food thought, in which you can take a snippet of what someone says and plaster over a t-shirt and say, this is what they say. Isn't that fascinating? And of course, then you see exactly what is the whole point. Is Of course, what's one of the examples you take a saying, eat, pray, love, or something like that. Put it on a t-shirt, put it on a tattoo. Get all these little quotes and phrases tattooed on you and pop it up on a wall to forever remind you of these statements and so forth like that ultimately what then happens is you take a snippet and you make it sellable and you make it precisely have therefore only a a, a past residue as he says of its past meaning and context 
of the way in which you have that whole poetic experience. Here now you can have the poetic experience within a very quick, easy to digest statement. Eat, pray, love. Done. Okay, now you've had that thought for five seconds. Now you can move on with the rest of your life. And it's that's what Marquise is trying to say. When we have something like poetry, which requires us to sit down, get into it, get enticed by the use of language, get seduced by it all, it all overcomes us. We start to get into the artist's way of doing things. And therefore, we start to experience how they see the world. It's all very much a, is a process. But here, the process is cut immediately down just to straight to the end context of here is someone who said this. Isn't that nice? Yes, it is. Now let's move on. And that's what Marquise is finding is the problem. To go back into that quote from page 68, we can see the ways in which someone like Wordsworth, or of course Nietzsche is one of the absolute fantastic examples of that for philosophy, because Nietzsche is a quote machine, they all become part of that culture machine that remakes them in order for them to be digestible, easily understood, easily read, all have one clear idea, clear context, clear meaning. You can see what it says. You buy exactly what it says and are happy with that. There's no really deeper thought to it than that. It does what it says on the tin, is a nice saying here for in the UK. So, building upon this whole examples then, we go into another quote from page 75. And this is where we have this word desublimation come in. So don't worry. This quote nicely explains exactly what this is all about. So let's get into it then. Artistic alienation is sublimation. It creates images of conditions which are irreconcilable with the established reality principle but which, as cultural images, become tolerable, even edifying and useful. Now this imagery is invalidated. Its incorporation into the kitchen, the office, the shop, its commercial release for business and fun, is, in a sense, desublimation, replacing mediated by immediate gratification. But it is desublimation practiced from a position of strength on part of society, which can afford to grant more than before because its interests have become the innermost drives of its citizens and because the joys which it grants promotes social cohesion and contentment. So let's go back into this and break it down. So first of all, we have the artist precisely have a relation into sublimation. Why is that? Because the artist ultimately is alienated from the world. Why is that? Because the world doesn't represent how they understand and think of the world itself. Therefore, as he says, how they understand and think of the world precisely is irreconcilable with the world itself. But then, as we started to build upon, what happens then is you have the painter and their images made into prints. You have the poet and their lines made into t-shirts and so on. Through all that, you have thinkers and painters become tolerable to society, edifying, useful. But in doing so, as he says, the imagery becomes invalidated because you put it into kitchens, offices, shops, commercial release for business and for fun. What is ultimately happened when that happens is that you then have an experience in the big shift from an artist having ultimately had a relationship into alienation and no longer having the world represented how they think about it is now replaced with immediate gratification as we were just saying, you boil down to the artist. This is a nice painting to look at. Buy it for your grandma. This is a nice quote. 
because you find it funny, you find it humorous, or it's slightly thoughtful, buy it on a t-shirt, or put it up on your wall. Why do, ultimately, we go into this, and this is going to be an idea that Marcuse is also going to build upon, is because now, within society, we've moved away from the sense of a delayed gratification, is one way of putting it into a sense of complete immediate gratification and immediate satisfaction of our desires and we can have all this happen precisely because that's the way in which society is now moved because of consumer society because the way in which products are sold to us as something exciting or something comfortable for instance so therefore we move into a really interesting discussion that then happens at sort of last half of chapter three and this is where he talks about the control and administration of our desires and our libido and what exactly is one of the points that he makes is you have within that pre-capitalist state unhappy consciousness because the world doesn't represent exactly how you feel now within contemporary society we have the invention of something called the happy consciousness why is this because contemporary society is incredibly focused upon our sense of gratification and immediate satisfaction so we have so much of societies all focused down upon pleasure and happiness how do we gain pleasure and happiness through gratification through immediate satisfaction in doing so he says what happens then is there's that there's a move away from eroticism and as we just said delayed gratification to a move towards sexual gratification and immediate satisfaction so one of the ways that we could just say it in a nice way without getting too technical into it eroticism of course can talk about the erotic experience and having an incredibly romantic experience and all be incredibly pleasurable without having a relation into sex and without having a relation into immediate satisfaction let's say and here's where we have a relation and difference between how things are in pre-capitalist society to capitalist society again is now the world's no longer hostile to our needs and no longer doesn't represent how we view the world but precisely the opposite of that but rather what does society in the world do seeks to satisfy our innermost needs and desires crucially and what's a really interesting discussion that happens at the same time it's really subtle when it happens but within pre-capitalist society he also talks about our experience is something and our enjoyment is not based upon ultimately repetition which is just another really posh way of saying our experience of the world cannot be recaptured and it goes into the points of when you read or specific people talking about a piece of music that they incredibly really enjoyed like and uh, one that immediately pops into mind is Kierkegaard talking about his love of Mozart's Don Giovanni and you read that and you get all his love for specifically the opera for Don Giovanni but then you realize that's precisely an experience that they've only had once or that he's only had once or perhaps it's only been a few couple of times let's say that just so happened to be a performance that's been done in Copenhagen where he lived but now within contemporary society precisely we have emotional experiences and experiences are itself is precisely based upon repetition and is sold as such let's say to put it in another context you have the experience of back for instance but then you have it back made 
into something that's meant to just be something that's nice to listen to and therefore you have bark just simply pigeonholed is a nice way to put it into something that's elevator music and then you start to also see Marquise's point of that's where we've moved from we've moved from an experience of having precisely a very limited experience of things like music in the first place to now we have streaming services and we have precisely repetition in and of itself built into how we enjoy things to such an extent that that is representative of our way in which our desires and our immediate gratification is fulfilled at the same time to have it available for it to be repeatable to always be able to buy another soft drink to always be able to buy that other beer and so on built into society itself there's another good quote here from page 77 so many good quotes in this chapter we are thus being preconditioned for the spontaneous acceptance of what is offered another way of putting that is you see it you want it that's another way of putting it and an example in which he gives is the way in which of course we have rooms in the house and so forth and the past is something that's incredibly private but within department stores as well as he says within display windows and how everything can be presented to us within shops it's as if it's within your house so therefore you see the very nice lampshade that's next to the bed for instance you see it you start to think about that lampshade in the context of your own bedroom you want it and then it's the same sense of you see the coca-cola you see the good feelings that they have on the advert you want it so it's that whole aspect of having that relation into being conditioned into the acceptance of being what's offered and the way in which our desires are being conditioned at the same time of precisely being fulfilled you see it you want it as well as we have a relation and interesting discussion going on as well within the end of chapter three with the body and the way in which sex plays a role within society of course the line is sex sells and of course that's one of the points that marcus is also making but here also he says from page 77 sexual features in the everyday work world and in work relations which is obviously a part of contemporary society what does he mean by this of course is that pre-capitalist society you didn't have people dressed in a protection particularly sexual manner for both men and women but as he says within 1960 society suddenly there's a move that happens and a difference because now he says you have attractively makeup and and sexy office girls as he says you also have the young junior executives at the same time what is this also making a point of that mark Hughes says is that when we're at work if we're not at work it's also about sex that is to say in the midst of having a potential working relationship there's also that whole sense of being drummed up at the same time a potential romantic relationship within the context of the working environment and another way of putting that if it's not about work it's about sex <laughs> so let's go back into talking about products then because there's quite an interesting relation into the Guy Debord as well that we covered because here we have this whole relation into desire you see the thing you want the thing it's all part of also what we talked about and the Guy Debord talks about the spectacle and how the ordinary object is made precisely into something spectacular what is that doing to us from the Marcuse way of thinking it's stimulating our design processes and of course desire in this given way is not just sex it's desire for food it's desire for clothing it's desire to have you know nice things and so forth it's all desire in a very much broad context not just solely within the sexual context but also here for the guide the boy he also talks about 
the way in which we're dissatisfied when we get home with the product. And it sort of loses that spectacular nature about it. And sort of you're like, you get really excited at the time, for instance, buying the lampshade because you think it would look great. But then you get home and then you're sort of like, oh, oh, well, you know, whoop de doo it's just another lampshade. So, yeah, there's a nice overlap between the Marcuse here as well as the Guy Debord that we talked about in Society the Spectacle discussion. So here's another great quote from page 78. As he says, Sex is integrated into work in public relations and is thus made more susceptible to controlled satisfaction. Technical progress and more comfortable living permit the systematic inclusion of libidinal components into the realm of commodity production and exchange. But no matter how controlled the mobilization of instinctual energy may be, it sometimes amounts to a scientific management of the libido. No matter how much it may serve as a prop for the status quo, it's also gratifying to the managed individuals, just as racing the outboard motor, pushing the lawnmower, and speeding the automobile are fun. So here we have precisely the way in which he's saying here that we have this relation of sex and desire having a relation into us being controlled. Why? Because our what we desire is something that's precisely preconditioned to us from society. And what we're told to desire, for instance, and what we're told to go and purchase and what we're told to dress like in order for us to be sexy or to be attractive and so on. All this whole idea of making a desire and want things builds into that within the whole system of commodity production and exchange, as he says, within what people want and what people find is going to be great at a given period, is going to boost, therefore, the economic value and so forth, the, com the more that they have to go and produce in the factories of the thing and so on. Just say, like, say, somebody thinks a fantastic handbag's going to be a great thing, and so that boosts, therefore, the whole production and so on for the handbag. But he says, no matter how controlled our desires may be, and also having a relation into the scientific administration of that as well, it's sort of like, as he rounds off here, as he says, sex becomes part and sort of banal in a way. How it becomes gratifying as to the managed individuals as racing the outboard motor, pushing the lawnmower, and speeding the automobile. Speeding the automobile. It's funny the way in which it's worded, but it's obviously a car that's speeding and going quite fast is rather exciting but here you can see kind of what he's making about the whole points about our desire as well as sort of sex in and of itself becomes something that's just banal something that's just immediately satisfying gratifying but there's no anything more deeper satisfying than having fun on a power lawnmower for instance they're comparable in the, in the level of satisfaction that they give but then you also see Marquis's point of going my god we're losing all the the sexy erotic nature about desire and what makes sex precisely a gratifying experience relationships gratifying and just compartmentalizing them all down to this is pleasurable this is pleasurable isn't this fun this is fun too and so Let's then take all this discussion that we've had about the pre-capitalist discussion of the unhappy consciousness, as you would say, between the artist's opposition between them and the world, and then how in capitalist society there's no longer division anymore. How can we think about all what Marcuse has said within a contemporary context, contemporary example, and one that came into mind was thinking about precisely contemporary film. Because the way in which you could say blockbusters all work is through precisely our 
immediate satisfaction and immediate gratification. There's always immediate payoffs that happen throughout the entire story. And what exactly is the focus upon is making the story as entertaining as possible. How is one of the ways in which that's done is to conform to societal norms at a given time period. And therefore you have an immense interest of movie companies and all this at the same time why because movie companies of course are spending at least 140 million dollars on per film is a minimal budget they want to make their money back out of it they're not going to make a film that's not profitable and therefore what's going to be one of the underlying things about blockbusters in and of themselves is that the movie companies are going to change movies themselves and say to the director, for instance, to focus upon what they think is entertaining in order to make the most amount of money possible. And I'm going to, unfortunately for some people, pick upon an example. That is to say, Marvel films. Why do I choose Marvel films specifically? Because here it ties into exactly those points. You have are incredibly focused upon making them as entertaining as physically possible. You want to make them as profitable as possible, yet at the same time, if it's popular, then you have an immense level of back catalogue that you can flash out and to try and also have not just one movie, but also a series of franchises. And hence why we have within the contemporary period as well, so much focus upon trying to franchise the absolute crap out of things and to focus upon past franchises like Ghostbusters and so forth in the past that's made companies lots and lots of money before but now they go and say well now we can even make even more money off of them just like Disney and Star Wars for instance how much money they made off of the three new movies so here we see precisely all those points that Mark Hughes wants to make. What's one of the problems that of course then happens is you have uh, films that are incredibly of course entertaining to people at a given time period. You have all emphasis upon let's say action, explosions, making it incredibly satisfying and enjoyable and so on. What starts to be the problem with that is that in one way you could say well do you go to a marvel movie to have a thought-provoking experience no but ultimately you could say well in the grandiose scheme of things are are marvel movies going to be held up in the same high esteem that something like parasite's going to be and there's where the marquis sort of puts his foot in the door and says well that's where we still have of course the relation back into contemporary film as well as a way in which we can have as well as a contemporary example from film there what makes parasite so different is because it goes back into what marquis wants to say you have precisely a conflict with the world you have precisely illustrating two people in the cinema of precisely an experience within Korean society within showing how the working class wouldn't be right is a concept because they literally live in the basement of a place the sort of underclass would be maybe a perhaps a much better way of putting it but ultimately we have that incredible contrast between the bourgeois lifestyle and people are incredibly well off compared to the poor in that showing precisely that dynamic within Parasite in the movie. And then the dynamic, of course, and what makes it parasitical is because the poor within the film need the rich in order to try to earn, get some money for a living in the first place. But then, of course, the irony is, is that the wealthy people in the house equally need the poor for them to run their house and do all the various different things for them at the same time but equally what's all happening within that of course is incredibly showing us and making us reflect upon the way in which society has a form of repression within it and showing us a conflict within society and so society in itself 
tries to give us something that's trying to make us happy, focus upon pleasure and make us always content. Well, here is a great example that shows us, well, actually, you can have much more out of a film to say, well, is it a happy film? Is it ultimately going to be pleasurable? Why would it not be better to say, I had an experience that was thought-provoking, that made me think? And therefore, another good example is the way in which almost, if nobody's watched David Lynch movies, David Lynch is equally a great director to go and have a watch as well, because he precisely makes you pay attention to almost every frame, unlike how you would do within a Marvel movie, for instance, because it's always trying to make you think about exactly what in the heck is it actually that you're watching, and to have a thought-provoking experience by the end of it, and to be able to have a discussion about the movie, rather than to just have it like, oh, I spent my £10 or whatever it would be watching the film, oh, that's fine, I guess, I remember just buy the DVD and watch it every once in a while. Shouldn't we get more out of things rather than just ultimately a throwaway thing shouldn't it be more thought-provoking rather than just always focused upon happy and happiness and pleasure in that way so overall what can we say rounding off then is that we have in pre-capitalist society the artist and the writer and the painter and so forth in opposition to the world the world doesn't represent how they think and how they understand and see the world. Therefore, what's so beneficial about that approach is that it shows the ways in which society is repressive and represses precisely their understanding of how they see things. But now within a contemporary context, we have precisely the opposite of all that happened. Why? because we have a focus upon happiness, contentment, and immediate gratification and satisfaction within everything that we have within a contemporary context. Also, within writers, their thoughts are no longer anything that you can have a great thought-provoking experience upon, but rather we have it made into a quotation, no longer do we have an experience of taking in a piece of art, looking at it for a period of time. Now we just simply say, it is a nice thing and move on. Or, oh, that was meaningful at a purpose, at a time period, wasn't that nice and move on. So therefore, its whole original intention and so forth is sucked out of it through simply being something that doesn't represent a different understanding of the world or a different experience, all that's sucked out because it's made into something to sell, to excite, or to comfort, is what Marcuse wants to say. Then, of course, we had a discussion into the way in which our desires also have a relation into contemporary society. And, of course, the relation of desire into design products to buy and how also that has a relation into administration and controlling what people want to buy. Then we wrapped off with a discussion of how can we take exactly what Marcuse says and think about it in terms of a contemporary context. And thinking about it in terms of contemporary film, we've seen and have a discussion that Within contemporary, at least blockbusters anyway, there's that focus upon all those points that Marquise wants to say. Something that's going to immediately satisfy us, be gratifying, and making it as entertaining as possible. Why is that? Because ultimately, the movie companies want to make it as profitable as possible, and therefore to not only get their money back, but also to make an excess of that and make a profit. Well, it's one of the examples then that we can start to see where and develop out what Marquise is trying to say in chapter three is with a film like Parasite because it offers us a contrasting view of the world itself. It's not simply based upon something for our immediate pleasure and our immediate satisfaction, 
but rather wants us to engage with its themes and have ultimately a discussion about them and precisely is thought-provoking. So, I hope you found that a really interesting listen to. In the next episode, we'll be continuing on having a discussion of Herbert Marcuse's One-Dimensional Man, getting stuck into Chapter 4. In the meantime, feel free to drop me an email at my address at dissectingphilosophygmail.com I'm also on Patreon.com at www.patreon.com forward slash Dissecting Philosophy where there's a full discussion of Slavoj Zizek's Pandemic 1 as well as an ongoing discussion of Zizek's Pandemic 2 and that is talking about coronavirus in our contemporary situation. The first episodes for those are completely free and each subsequent episode is available for a £5 subscription or your regional equivalent. Feel free to also tip me a coffee at coffee.com forward slash dissecting philosophy ko-fi.com forward slash dissecting philosophy and lastly I can be found on Twitter at I am a rubber man. Many thanks for listening and I hope you'll join me next time.